0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture.
2: Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe.
3: And I'm Max Sussman. We often talk on this show about how Irish food is not just Guinness and potatoes. And yet.
1: Here we are about to interview someone who owns a chip shop. I had never really thought about the fact that there might actually be a type of potato that is the best to make a chip with.
3: And not only that, but like that type of potato isn't necessarily available year round.
1: How many kinds of potatoes do you think there are? At least 45. 5,000.
3: Oh my God. Get out of here.
1: No. I'll Um, stay.
3: Did you know that the potato was my first culinary love?
1: I did not.
3: And in fact, I used to eat like I used to eat potatoes so often that I got a reputation. And, and it was one of the first things that I actually started to cook. And the first cookbook that I ever got was called the Potato Cookbook.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah.
3: But our guest this week is interesting, not in only in terms of her potato knowledge, but in so many other ways. Eunice Power is who we are so lucky to be speaking to, and she's a chef and small business owner, as well as being the director of the West Waterford Food Festival.
1: Eunice opened the restaurant and chips in Dungarvan, which is in County Waterford, a few years ago. And on today's episode, we talked to her about so many things from potatoes to where she sources her food from, how to provide really great, fresh, and sustainable food at reasonable prices. And another thing which is particularly interesting to me, because I just had a baby a few months ago, and we talked a little bit about what it's like to be a working mom or a woman and an entrepreneur, how to how to raise a family and also excel in your career.
3: Yeah, it was a great conversation, a lot of fun and uh, surprising, and some of the twists and turns it took what we end up chatting about. So thanks again for joining us this week. And here is our interview with Eunice Power.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on Dyed Green. We're really excited to talk to you today.
4: Yeah, I'm really excited as well. It's my first time being on a podcast.
1: Oh, cool. Welcome. Glad we have the the honor and privilege. (laughs) So I wanted to start out just by having a conversation actually about potatoes. When we talk to Americans about Irish food, we often make the point that modern Irish cuisine is so much more than just potatoes and Guinness. But the reality is that Irish people do eat a lot of potatoes and probably mostly in the form of chips. And with that being said, uh, we would love to hear about what type of potato you use for your chips and how you are able to go about finding that
4: perfect spud. Okay, so that's the perfect, in quest of the perfect spud. So I'll give you a little bit of history. So um, up to about, I suppose, 15, 20 years ago, um, potatoes were a huge part of our diet. I mean, no main meal was complete without potatoes. And in some cases, that is the case. You know, it's the meat, spud and veg, you know. um. However, about, I suppose, 10 years ago, there was a marked move away in Ireland from eating potatoes traditionally, you know, as they were eaten traditionally as part of the meal. So potato growers were looking at different types of potato to grow that the market was looking for. So in Ireland, traditionally, Maris pipers were used for shipping potatoes, and they were grown in the UK and, um, and they're imported to Ireland. Now, Italian um, chippers, who were the original chippers, um, always got their potatoes from Italy. And then Irish chips generally came from the UK. So there was a government sort of incentive, I suppose, to start people, to encourage people to grow the Mars Piper potato. And it was done with a greater or larger, you know, success in different areas. So in Dungarvan, where we are, we're on the coast, but we're um, surrounded by mountains on one side and the sea on the other. And as it turns out, we have the perfect microclimate to grow Mars Piper potatoes. So um, five years ago, five or six years ago, I had this um, idea that I'd like to and actually it was always kind of there in the back of my mind that I'd like to open a fish and chip shop in Dungarvan Well, a takeaway. And um so my reason for doing that was that a we were on the coast. Um we were you know we're in the sea with a beautiful harbor in Dungarvan which used to be a trading harbor you know now it's kind of silted up a little bit and it's mainly used for recreational boats. And um when the opportunity came up to buy a premises on the quay I jumped at it. And I opened um, my takeaway which is called and chips. So the idea behind this was that I was using the potatoes that were grown within a kilometre, two kilometres away in my takeaway. And you could have anything with them. So you could have your um, chips we could fish with them or indeed burgers. And we, so, you know, and everything is sourced pretty much locally. So, yeah, so we opened on chips and I, I didn't know as much about potatoes and the cooking of chips as I do now. I started off thinking, you know, this can't be... Um, This can't be too different. And people seem to think there's a standard way to cook potatoes, um, which isn't the case because we're dealing with a live kind of product that changes as the year goes on. And little things that happen, like little climate episodes that we have here, like, for example, potatoes are ready to go into, we're in storage, waiting to be delivered and we had a really bad frost um, last November time, which wasn't kind of expected. It sort of caught us by surprise. And the potatoes then, because of the frost, the sugars changed and they became really, the sugars, the starch changed to sugar and, um, and they looked fine. And they were peeled and they looked fine. They were chipped and they looked fine. But once we started to cook them, they went to a really dark brown colour, which means the sugars are high. So a lot of those billets had to literally just be composted. And then as the summer goes on, and we're just between the, um, we're just between the new crop and the end of the old crop we also find that the potatoes get a bit high in sugar so we have to look at a different variety at that time now I go to my grower and he tells me this is kind of one I have in the interim and sometimes they're really good and other times they're not as good but there's always kind of a six week period there but as we're approaching that period we have to treat the potatoes a little bit differently so we may have to soak them in water and blanch them a a little bit less and a little bit less cooking time. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not a straightforward kind of operation when you're dealing with fresh food and potatoes are the same as, as everything else. Wow. What a, what a great answer to yeah, that
3: question. Yeah. There's so much more to it than <laughs> I so think fascinating. most
4: people, yeah. most people yeah. would
3: ever think, you know?
4: I know a lot of people think, you know, you get like, like McDonald's, you know, there's a standard potato, and there's a standard chip all the time. But when you're cooking with fresh ingredients, there's always going to be variations in how you cook them and how you treat them and how indeed each year is going to develop. I mean, I'm always looking at for blight because, you know, blight is a really big problem. And now we in Ireland now, we have that kind of war. It's not warm yet, but we have a, a lot of dampness. And that can cause potato blight. And for me, that would be a real problem, you know. And then also, you know, last year with the Ukraine war and everything else, all we heard about was the price of fertilizer. So I'm I'm, I'm waiting for those really expensive potatoes to hit the decks and see what price they're going to be <laughs> shortly.
3: There's a, I'm reminded of, there's a restaurant in New York called Balthazar. And they're like really well known for a couple things, but they do steak frites, steak frites. And it's like a, just a huge part of their meal of the menu. And they go through like hundreds of cases of potatoes a month. And there is that gap between the one crop and the other crop where the sugar content changes and they have to, their solution was to actually uh, rent like storage space in New Jersey and warehouse the potatoes that they would need and pre-buy them. it's just really interesting to know some of the behind the scenes stuff that happens to make the end product the same for people, you know?
4: Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. And I suppose we don't, because we're trying to buy from one, we're buying from one supplier and we actually take 50% of its crop and we have a tiny little place on the Key in Dunk Arbon, but like, you know, we could go through a ton of potatoes in a weekend if it's a really, really busy weekend. And I love those weekends. Um, but, and it's funny because in Antships, we have an open kitchen and it's facing the sea and it's a really hot little, you know, it's a really hot little kitchen. And sometimes I just want to, run out and jump into the because <laughs> <laughs> it gets so warm in there. Because once we have extraction, it's air in and air out. And if it's anyway warm outside, it kind of contributes to the heat in the kitchen, you know. But um, I suppose some of my theory behind and chips and behind the potatoes is that, you know, that we I really want to keep the food miles down. So I really want to buy locally. And, um, and if we have a little period, an interim period, where we can't get from one supplier he will, and we want to do it with the same person all the time. So he will, he'll know what we're looking for and he'll get them from a local grower nearby. But it's very much keeping everything in the community. The money goes back into the community. And, you know, like as I mentioned earlier, we want to be a sustainable chipper. We're not there yet, you know, there's, um, but, but we're getting there. We're making small measures all the time to make ourselves more sustainable.
1: Where did that kind of ethos come from? Was that something that you were always
4: interested in? Uh, it's me, it's 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 all me. A previous job, I'd say I'm actually unemployable now. Like I've worked for myself for about 25 years. I don't think anybody take me on, but it was um, so 25 years ago, I started off the catering business. So my background isn't actually a chef. I studied hotel management. I did my craft training in Switzerland, my management training in London. And then I came back to Ireland and I think you actually have to go away to come back and appreciate what you have. And, um, and that's what I did. And I looked around me and I saw these amazing ingredients and, you know, my business really grew over the years. I mean, we, catered for i suppose outside dublin we would have been one of the biggest caterers in the in like small private caterers um in ireland we catered for all the clubs and three arena but if you look at my menus you'll know exactly where we're from because there'll be dungarvan brewing company beer and the batter there'll be knockalara sheep's cheese there'll be knocking cheddar like in and chips with cheesy garlic chips and the cheddar is local cheddar so uh, this has always been my own ethos. I'm really proud of where I'm from. I'm a farmer's daughter, and you know we like we didn't have this exotic food that we have now. I mean, when I got married in 1997, I remember looking for goats' cheese, and I had to go to the farm where the where the goats were milked and get the goats' cheese. I mean, you know, Donegal was our Ireland was. Uh, I wouldn't say backward back then, but we hadn't embraced pesto, for example, you know, and and things like that that are now commonplace ingredients.
1: I'm also curious about the fact that you use a lot of wild fish in the restaurant. And I'm wondering, is that something that you have trouble with consistency in terms of always being able to get the same types of fish? Or do you just change what's available on the menu pretty regularly?
4: I change it all the time so basically we um we buy fish so I'm um, sustainable fish so in our so wild fish so we don't buy any farmed fish and we're always looking for sustainable fish so when people come into a takeaway the first thing they're looking for on the menu is cod 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 you know cod oh my god but we use a lot of haddock instead um, we use whiting. We use ling, which is part of the cod family. It's fished locally. It's a long, it's a long fish. It's really dense, and we serve it in goujons because of the shape of the fish. Um, We buy all of our fish in fresh, but like yesterday, somebody rang me and said, I have 30, uh, I've just got 30 kilos of ling in. Will you take it? So I took it. Now, I I didn't need it, but I took it, I prepped it, I vacuum packed it last night in five kilo bags, put it in the freezer. So I have a little stockpile there in case I need it. But um, yeah, and we take it, we take what's on the market. I mean, with different things coming in, you know, you might, and it's always price, okay? And I'll go back to price in a second. Um, a gurnard we get sometimes we get it when place is in season there a couple of weeks ago once the water gets gets gets, gets warm we have place sole. so there are different times of the year I mean not going to get place in Dungarvan in November because it's you know it's just not being fished the, the water isn't warm enough Um, And so we we go uh, seasonally. And if there's only one fish available, well, that's all we'll have, you know, if it's just haddock and we can do lots of different things with it. We can do fish burgers or fish tacos. But generally speaking, we will nearly always have ling. We'll nearly always have haddock. And the one fish that we um, that isn't an Irish fish, it comes from the Atlantic and it comes in frozen are scampi. And um, But again, they're wild Atlantic scampi and we buy those in frozen and then we just defrost them daily and make scampi out of them and they're absolutely delicious. We have a great reputation for scampi. But things like calamari are coming at the moment. Squid is coming in. And, you know, so we just see what's there and we're able to take it. And then we're, you know, like in any business, if you pay quickly, if you're a good customer, if you take big volumes, you're always going to get the priority and the, you know, our, our suppliers are going to look after us. So our fish comes, from um from far away it's west Cork east Cork um Waterford and then we um go as far as Wexford so that's generally where it's along the east coast the east and kind of slightly west coast so you mentioned that the potatoes that you buy
3: are from as uh, much closer than would have previously been possible with potatoes being imported from Italy and from uh Utah. from the UK so um I'm wondering, like, are other fish uh, fish shops importing their fish as well? Is that something that's quite commonplace? So I'm just like, just to really get into how different it is, the operation that you're mm-hmm. running from the common one.
4: Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, I'm, I, I can only speak for myself on what I do. I imagine a lot of people buy in frozen cod and frozen fish from other places. I don't do it. And um but let's say, you know, if you hung around outside enough restaurants and watch the deliveries come in, you see the boxes passing by, you know. Um, but it's and you know, the thing is with in business and in what you do, you have to stay in your own lane all the time and just do what you do. I don't use any farmed fish um so I don't use farm sea bass or farm salmon or farm macro. actually we wouldn't deep fry oily fish anyway. But like for example, sea bass in Ireland, we legally can't fish sea bass. Um, you can get a little bit of wild sea bass here and there. It's on a quota, and um, but so and then farm sea bass is most commonplace, and we don't use that. That's just an example. For you know, yeah. Um, cod again is um, the stocks of cod are quite low, and um, we would only use cod when we when there's a high stock of cod, and you know when there's plenty of it. But we don't actively seek out cod. In fact, I would rarely have cod on my menu. In saying that, I have it on today. It came in this morning.
3: <laughs> you and you, you mentioned that you do not use farmed fish, and listeners of the show will remember hopefully our conversation with Sally Barnes. We spoke a lot about farmed fish, salmon farming in particular. So what was your thought process into making the decision to not use farmed fish?
4: Oh, you know what? I just don't, I suppose I don't agree with the principles of how they're farmed um, more often than not. And like if for the general public, if they're going to buy salmon, I would encourage them to buy frozen wild Atlantic salmon that comes from Iceland or somewhere, because it's actually much better. It's farmed at sea. It's on these huge big ships and it's frozen at sea. It's a much better product. We just hear, you know, about the ivermectin used for the lice, the 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 overcrowding, the whole lot. In fact, it's a conversation I don't even like having because it kind of gives me the ick, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just going back to salmon and going back to canned fish, I don't like to be a snob about fish or have, you know, elitist ideas because I really want everyone to eat fish and enjoy it. So, um, and if people who can't afford to buy wild salmon because it's outrageously expensive because of the, you know, it's a delicacy, this very short season for it. And again, you know, because of the, As you know, the management of rivers and things, it's not that plentiful. Um, But canned fish that's canned on ships is actually really good for you because the canning process so the fish is is caught in kind of fillets, the bones are included, are, are canned as well. So actually, from a calcium and oil point of view, it's a really, really good product. So, you know, don't be afraid to eat canned fish, or can- canned salmon. Um, Like, obviously, I'm not going to serve it in chips. But, you know, for personal use, it's, um, it's a good alternative, you know, if, if you're looking for fish and you can't afford to buy the fresh product. In Ireland, fish is quite expensive. Um. I mean, I'm sure the states is probably three times as expensive it is here because I know your your food prices are so high. Um, but it's and, and that's the other challenge I have. Like if I wanted to make money, I'd probably open a pizzeria. You know what you're going to have flour and, and water. Uh, but you know, fish uh, a fish takeaway. You know, takeaway fish is a is a very expensive option. And going back to um, eating fish, I want people to eat fish traditionally in Ireland. People had a little bit of, they're a bit funny about fish, you know, it was always cooked on Fridays. They didn't be, didn't proper extraction. It was fried in very light frying pans. The frying pan, the whole house stunk of fish, you know, and it put people off. So they tend to like to go to a takeaway or somewhere, and they get lovely fresh fish and they don't have the, the cooking smells around their house or their apartment the other um, the other side of fish is that in restaurants you know fish is quite expensive and um, not because just because of the fish but because of the whole service around it, you know So I really wanted people to come to Dungarthen, have lovely fresh fish and chips, have lovely burgers and chips, um, freshly made chicken goujons. we have a lovely Syrian chef that makes falafel for us as, as a vegan option and uh, to be able to have that sitting outside and for a family to come along with two adults two kids we serve half portions of fish for kids and to be able to have two glasses of wine have all that for 50 quid you know so 50 euros sitting on side of the water and they've had a really good meal There's, and and they can talk about it and have opinions about it you know and it's um, our branding is lovely it's people something people associate with And so if you go to Dungarvan, go to Anchip, sit down at the quay and have something nice to eat that isn't going to break the bank. But you can experiment, you know. And I spoke about Ling earlier. When I was small, Dungarvan was a great town for angling. So in the summertime, you see these big scales and fish hanging off them. And very often it was huge, big cod or big Ling. So Dungarvan is quite famous for Ling. So and a lot of people haven't heard of it. So, you know, I'm delighted for them to come in and try it and tell them all about it.
1: I wanted to touch on a couple of things that that you just mentioned to talk a little bit about the price of food. We own a small, fast, casual restaurant in New York, and sustainability is really important to us too. And I know we're always talking about the true cost of food, which is a conversation that comes up, especially if you you care about supporting food producers and you care about the, the origins of where the food comes from that you serve, a lot of people want to eat organic food, but then when it comes to paying more for it in in a restaurant or in the grocery store, they can sometimes balk at the prices. And I'm not sure if you read J.P. McMahon's recent op-ed in the Irish Times where he kind of pushed back about people's complaints of the cost of food in restaurants. I also know that in Ireland, there's been some conversations recently about grocery stores and food retailers bringing their prices down. So I guess that's kind of a long-winded preface for my question, which is as somebody who really prizes working with local suppliers, working with wild fish, you have a lot of a lot of things that are important to you that are driving your own food choices. Um, how do you keep your prices reasonable? Do you feel a squeeze too in that regard?
4: Absolutely. I hate, absolutely. I feel squeezed. Um, and you know, what's really squeezed us this year, which came from like, you know, it was kind of came from the side was the cost of power. So we're always looking at the price of food, but then our cost of cooking the food and keeping the place open was so high that it kind of took my mind off the food price. But yeah, so traditionally you look at GPs and I'm sure you do as well. So I've had to make a trade-off between having a traditionally high GP that a takeaway would have to really staying in my lane, focusing on the quality of the product and hoping to get volume. And that is what we that's what I look for. So and the other side is the cost of like. So traditionally, you know, we looked at percentages, you know, for wages, for um, food costs, for power, et cetera. They've all gone absolutely out the window over the last few years because, yes, the price of food has gone up. Nothing like the U.S. now, but it ha- it has really gone up. Um, in fact, the price of butter went down last week. We're all delighted about it. Um, but it's the price of food has gone up. But we also as employers, this whole idea about sustainability and about fairness and in the community, you have to pay higher wages as well. You know, so those margins are really, really squeezed um, with regards to organic. like my potatoes aren't aren't organic but they're locally grown. They're grown with as little chemicals as possible. And we're probably in a unique place in Ireland because agriculture hasn't taken the same sort of dramatic turn as it has in other countries. We don't have that mass production. We have a brilliant climate for growing grass, we uh, for growing crops. So we are really, really lucky here. And our um, our farming policies are such that you know we have nitrogen policies we've we all these different policies where farmers whilst they're not organic you know they're near as damaged you know so we um so I'm kind of pretty confident when I buy fruit and veg in the supermarket that whilst I'm not buying always organic I'm buying from a really good source. Um, so And that's very important. But well, I was actually in the States. I have a son living in the States. Well, he's in college there. He's a runner and he's based in Tulsa. So I went to the Midwest last October and I was absolutely shocked and horrified by the food prices. And the. I suppose really, you know, I, I thought about food poverty a lot, you know. Because it's mindfulness when eating and making the right choices. So, you know, in the supermarkets, you can buy Yes, sure you can buy a bottle of, you know, minerals or, you know, Coke or orange or something like that and crisps. And, you know, all that kind of rubbish food is really expensive. It's food that we it's really cheap. Sorry, it's food that we don't need. It's no good for us. Buy judiciously and buy small amounts. Personally, I don't do a big supermarket shop. I have three boys, they're savages, you know, and, and a husband. We live in a farm. They're all athletic, they've huge appetites. But you know, we fill up with lots of veg and potatoes and, and protein, but I, I never I don't buy rubbish, you know, they have porridge for breakfast. Um you know, breakfast cereals were a treat, you know? um you know cocoa pops or something was an absolute treat that you might throw into the basket christmas time and i am one of those people in, in the supermarket who looks at what people are putting in because every now and then you've got to go in and buy the you know the boring stuff like loo roll and things like that and i, I look what people have in their trolleys and i'm fascinated you know at certain times of the year when eyes are stacked high with boxes of tins of biscuits and tins of roll you know sweets and things and i mean i wouldn't in a million years buy any of that stuff you know um and in fact, when it comes into the house, it's great because when the savages come in at night, I mean, I leave it out for all their friends, and it disappears in two minutes. But we, you know, it's it's making food choices, and that's very easy for me to say because I have the um, the power to make those choices because I can cook, I can make something out of absolutely. Nothing, you know, I mean, if I have a dozen eggs, I can make an amazing potatoes left over in my fridge. Um, But education is a huge part to play in this. So going back to your organic restaurant, it's making people aware of the of the other choices. So they mightn't think twice about going to a fast food place like. You know those. I don't want to mention those big chains. It's her rubbishy food that you're absolutely empty after, or have something really good like a bowl of porridge and whisk an egg at the end and some cinnamon, which is going to keep you going all day. You know, that's so. There, you know, it's people. It's but it's making informed choices and uh, and educated choices, and really, it's kind of back to government policy, really, on how we educate people. You know.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, our podcast is about Irish food and the people that make it and the people that, you know, the people that talk about it. So I was wondering, like, how you see your how you see N-chips fitting into the bigger picture of Irish food. You know, fish and chips is such a traditional way of such a traditional type of Irish food. Would you say you're like holding true to the tradition or would you say you are kind of trying to move it forward or evolve it in a certain way? Or do you look at it totally in a different way?
4: Um, I'm trying to move it forward in a in a different way. So I'm trying to reframe it a little bit. So in the past, takeaways were seen as kind of cheap and nasty, you know. And I'm trying to just change that with having really good quality ingredients. So this is real food cooked fast. And it's a new wave of Irish food, you know, it's a new wave of Irish food that's coming through. The, um, you know, we, we had, I, I'm actually director of our um, food festival here in West Waterford, It's one of the largest food festivals in Ireland um, like with 70,000 people. We have a population of 10,000 people here at Dengarvan and with 70,000 people attending our, our food festival. And we had this conversation at the food festival about is, Noma, is Nomad the new NOMA? So people are eating in a different way. So the day where you go out for the big dinner on Saturday nights or on Friday nights and spend, you know, a couple of hundred quid ahead and have a huge dinner and loads of wine and four courses, that day is kind of gone. You know, that's a real special treat kind of one off thing. People are eating in a different way. They're going They're They're not cooking as much as they did. They're eating fast food, so they're looking for better choices. Um, on Saturday mornings, they're meeting friends for brunch. They're going to a food truck after they go to the beach for a walk. They're getting a takeaway after they've had their swim. And, you know, I met somebody yesterday who said they God, they had the most brilliant day. They went for a swim in the beach. I mean, swimming in the beach now here isn't for the faint heart in the middle of summer, not to mention now because it was it was pretty nippy. But once you get in, it's lovely. That's what we say. What was it like? was beautiful. <laughs> once you get over in the initial shock. Uh, So um, go in for a swim. We have a hot pod beside the beach. We can go for a sauna, go into town, have fish and chips and a glass of wine, looking out at the sea. There was a full tide last night. I mean, what could be nicer? And that's the idea of a night out. Whereas 20 years ago, do you think my parents went for a swim and went for a sauna and had fish and chips? No, they didn't. They went out for a big meal and a Saturday night with their friends, you know. And they had, you know, the full works, you know, the starter, the soup, the main course, the dessert, um, probably not as much wine as uh, you know as, as we might have had in our day, but um, yeah, and the Irish copies afterwards, and and those days are sort of you know that that kind of eating isn't really part of modern Irish society anymore. I think
2: this episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for ten years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in two thousand and eight. serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's like Heritage Radio Network is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at RobertaSPizza.com.
1: I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that you're a woman and you're an entrepreneur. And I know that you you mentioned that you worked for yourself, basically, for the for the past 25 years. I was reading an article that you wrote in the Irish Examiner, and you mentioned that your mother inspired your love of cooking. You also mentioned that she wasn't allowed to work when she first got married because there was a marriage ban in place. It's my understanding that that meant that if you were a woman, a married woman, you weren't allowed to have a career outside of the house. I'm not sure if if there were exceptions to that, but it just made me think a lot about women in Ireland today and the fact that there is perhaps a generation gap when it comes to women as role models for other women that are coming up. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about women that came before you, that you were particularly inspired by when you were, when you were setting out to, to work for yourself.
4: Yeah. Um, that's, that's very good. Uh, it's a very good question, Kate. So, um, In the 60s, when my mother got married, um, she was a home economics teacher. So she had trained in this college called Sign Hill, four year degree in, in, in teaching. And when she got married, she wasn't allowed to teach. Uh, she, she wasn't allowed to teach because of the marriage ban. Now, a couple of years later, now there were some professions that could, perhaps if you were a primary school teacher in an area where there was a need, you could do it. If you're a nurse and there was a need, you could do it. But very often people couldn't do it. And if you're married to a farmer, they were seen as being sort of wealthy and therefore you couldn't um there were lots of things taken into consideration, um, but we didn't have equality in Ireland. I mean, until the kind of mid 70s, early 80s, a woman had to get permission to leave the country. You were your husband's chattel. So and, and there was a very traditional role for para- for women in the home. Now, um, there were some people outside that. And I can think about Jane O'Callaghan in Longville House. There is Lauren Fitzgerald, who had the lovely Shanna here in Dungarvan, Dottie Flynn in the Park Hotel. These were all self-employed women, um, Doreen Allen and her mother-in-law Myrtle Allen. These were all self-employed women who started off cooking for their own businesses and, uh, and amazing women. Oh my God, what a force of nature they were, they were, they were brilliant. Um, But traditionally, cooking in Ireland was a men's domain. There weren't that many female chefs because of the unsociable hours, etc. Now, I would say that when I started working for myself, it was in 1997, I got married. Um, I found it. So I married a farmer and he still had probably traditional ideas about me and I had traditional ideas from where I came from. So I was on that cusp of, you know, still trying to be a traditional wife and mother and have my own business. And you know what? It was really, really tough. Somebody asked me recently, what was the most stressful time of my life? And I said, all of my 30s and 40s, like, really? I'm in my 50s now and it's brilliant. The children are rare and I can kind of, you know, I'm my own boss. I can do what I want. But I can tell you, you know, coming home from work at 11 o'clock at night to probably an untidy kitchen, getting up early, trying to get the lunches for the kids, get them out of school, get the house somewhere kind of tidy, start off again for the day. I was running and racing all of the time. It was really hard. And I. Who put that pressure on me? Probably myself. Probably I was in at a level in my business whereby I didn't have enough money to have a full time housekeeper, a childcare. I was still trying to be everything to everyone. And you know what? I'd say most people were like that in my shoes. And whilst a lot has changed, not a huge amount has changed, you know, Women are, like, somebody has to look after the children at home. And if 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 the men have the job, it does, you know, a lot of that falls on women. I know we've equality and we've child, you know, sharing of house tasks and that kind of thing. But um, and I look at my own kids and I wonder, have I done a really bad job for them? Or will their wives curse me in years to come because I have um, in many ways kind of filled that traditional role at home? But it's um it's hard, you know, for women as entrepreneurs, it's, it's still quite hard and in the food business, you know, when you shake it all out, you know, when you shake all the costs going in, and the and you put in childcare and all of these other contributing factors, and then you look at what comes out at the end, it's not the the margins aren't huge. You'd want to really love it, you know, and and I really love what I do. I'm really passionate about it, because you know the money side of it for what goes in isn't as um isn't as profitable as it really should be for the inputs going in. And so a female entrepreneur, like I'm all for women, I'm all for independence. I think that women should always have their own income, but all of that comes at a cost. And, and you know, we're 30 or 25, 30 years on from when I started out, but things have changed, but not in huge leaps, you know, and the support there for women Isn't that brilliant? I mean, actually, when I was 25 years ago, I was looking for a bank loan and I went into our local bank and the bank manager had the conversation with my husband about me. I'm sure that wouldn't happen now, but, you know, that was only 25 years ago. I feel like that, that even if that isn't exactly
3: how the conversation would go, that I think that that dynamic still exists a lot. I know Kate and I have been in, 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 uh, social interactions where I'm getting all the questions and attention and it's like, no, like that's, yeah. that's nothing to do with me. You should be asking Kate about these things, wow. but the assumption yeah. is there for some reason. Mm.
1: But that's, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to me because we actually had a baby in, in January. Um, we have a, oh, we congratulations. Have a thank you. We have a seven year old and then, you know, and now we have a almost four month old and, you know, uh, our business, our travel business started getting really busy just right around January, Um, much busier around January when she was born. So I, uh, you know, I'm in that stage right now where I'm juggling trying to build the business and take care of the child. And, you know, Max is a phenomenal father and partner. So that's great. He's also a chef. It's, it's, that's like a, um, Kind of a trade secret if you if you want to marry if you, you want to marry said, a chef I mean, just so yeah exactly if you marry a chef <laughs> you know whether you're um, whoever you are it's really great to have someone else be cooking for you but well, you but, might
3: end up with somebody who just eats grilled cheese over the over the true, trash can true but also, true so, yeah.
1: but yeah no I mean I think definitely when you're um, you know when you're a woman and you're and you're holding a baby sometimes people don't even ask you like what what you do because they just assume you know you're the mom. Mm.
4: And it's, you know, you find that a lot, you know, that um, that it's it's really poor for your confidence, you know. And so a lot of people having had kids, and have been at home with them, um, you know, find it hard enough to kind of get back and find their voice again in the workplace. And I mean, you know, I'm in my 50s. I love women in their 50s because they have that little bit of liberation, you know. But it's, um, it's I, I, you know, there is a big confidence thing from women who haven't been who've been at home and to go back out to the workplace again and to find their voice again you know and I'm all for encouraging that but it it, it can really shake your confidence you know when you're um when you disappear into the background which hopefully that won't happen to you Kate you won't let that happen
1: no (laughs) I'm a little bit yeah I I have a little bit of a of a I'm very nice and, and well mannered in most situations, but I do have a little stubborn streak, so I don't like being put yeah. in a corner.
4: <laughs> yeah, nobody puts Kate in the corner. No.
3: <laughs> I just, I did want to ask you a little bit about about your um, catering operation, and you know, in particular, how I mean, just the feat of having uh, grown and sustained a business for that long, and I'm wondering what it took to do that and sort of how you have sort of evolved and changed with the, with people's expectations and with dining, with trends about people, what people want and how the, how the food that people are looking for has changed and kind of just, you know, you've been at that really interesting forefront of trying to please people with food for a pretty nice long period of time in which so much has changed. And, you know, so like you were mentioning, so many more people are traveling. You know, pasta wasn't didn't used to be a thing. Exposure to new ingredients. I'm just curious what your what it was like for you to be doing all that during that.
4: Yeah, to evolve. Yeah. Well, I suppose we've just kind of. So, first of all, I think there's a huge passion for me. You know, to stay current, um, to see what's going on. There's a huge experimental side. Um, I don't know if I mentioned at the beginning, but I'm actually not a trained chef. So um 25 years ago, I got married. I went into contractation because that's what you do when you get married. You get a nine to five job in a big factory. Well, that didn't go that well for me because, you know, it wasn't my thing, and so we had to build a house. We said, you know, we'll build a bigger house, and I'll have a B and B. And then I thought, I'm never going to make enough money for this. So as it was being built, I said to the builder, "Okay, can you put a wall here and I make a catering kitchen? I divide my own family kitchen to catering kitchen and a regular kitchen." And I opened a little restaurant, and that's when I learned to cook. So I had that restaurant about three to four years, and the little part. And in that time, we were listed in McKenna. Guides is one of the, uh, one of the best restaurants in Ireland, you know, the 100 best places to eat in Ireland. Like it was really, really good. And I think that's because I think outside the box. So I came from a hotel background. I'm really good at logistics and I'm really visual. You know, I almost can see a dish how it look before I start to put it together. So I work backwards. So traditional chefs are sort of a little bit horrified by my approach sometimes, but but not really, but this is my approach. And it's all about like looking around, well, what can I get, you know? And um, so when you, when I started off, first of all, I didn't have the confidence to say that, you know, I was, dri- I was led by what people wanted me to, to produce as opposed to what I felt would work. And so you look and you look at, you know, your biggest learning exercise is what comes back on the plates? You know, like that's at weddings or at functions, what comes back? If this is coming back, then people don't want this. A cup down, pair back, give them what they want. So so we started off, you know, traditionally you'd have a wedding where you have canapes and then people come in, they start down, sit down, they have a starter, a main course, a dessert, tea and coffee, wedding cake. So I'm I'm catered for very few weddings now and I I can tell you why in a minute, but um so next weekend I have a fab wedding. I'm really looking forward to it. Like in fact last night as I was going to sleep, I was thinking about, you know, the the canopies, which aren't exactly canopies, they're anti the sort of like it's a big spring table spring summer table of what's really good at the moment and I was thinking about presentation how am I going to present all of this so um, what's happening now is the starters are getting much much lighter and the the food beforehand is getting not heavier but 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 more, you know? So we're going to have little jars of of little of fresh crab. When I mean, in Ireland our crab pots go out on St. Patrick's Day. And so from the end of March onwards, with that lovely wild hand picked crab, which is wildly expensive as well, but it's absolutely gorgeous. So if crab, there's good have some pickled radish with that. Um, I have lots of wild garlic at the moment I'm going to make a wild garlic mayonnaise it's just very very mild not too strong Um, we'll have some lovely fresh salmon some smoked oysters from Hederman's with Guy Frank Hederman's smokes i sorry smokes mussels they're absolutely divine have you had him on your programme yet? no not yet no he's a great smokehouse and he smokes butter and we'll have some of that um, some brown bread, we have those lovely, so it's an Irish treat so um, smoked ham from Go and then we have uh, a lovely baker here in Dungarvan who makes some gorgeous baguettes so, and some Irish farmhouse cheese. So we'll have big tables where people come and they'll help themselves to all of that. Beforehand starters then are very light so we'll have some Irish mozzarella with some new season tomatoes the wedding is in West Cork, so I've got Skeganor duck, which is um is a local duck, um like it's homegrown in West Cork with some raw asparagus, which is new season asparagus. And then for dessert, that I'm doing these amazing dessert gardens. So people aren't going to sit down for dessert; we're going to walk around. So I'm going to make it just some lovely little cake pops, um, lem- little lemon bars, um, macarons. Um, chocolate brownies, tiny little crumb caramels with rhubarb. Um, so, people were going to walk around with desserts because now people don't really want to sit down for traditional pudding. They want to move around and have movable feasts. We'll have some cheese afterwards and later on that night. We'll have some local sausages and Blas, Blas are made of there. They're gorgeous, really light bread bun. Um, Some chicken wings. We're trying to use all parts of the chicken. Uh, Maybe some duck spring rolls. So we use the, the leg of the ducks that we're having for main course. And that's changed. You know, it's a lot more moving around food as opposed to sitting down, formal dining, getting back to our earlier conversation about the, I mean, people want to move around and chat a lot more as opposed to sitting down for three hours and having the big feast. So that's one of our big changes. Um. This year, I like last year, I think I catered for about 40 weddings. And bearing in mind, we came out of COVID at the end of May. And there was a lot of quick turnaround and cancelled COVID weddings and on kind of, you know, people who wanted to catch up. And in my team, after the two years of COVID, we all had a chance to kind of sit around and think about things. And there wasn't the appetite to to continue as we had done. So the appetite to travel to, you know, the nether regions in Ireland for a wedding and getting up at six in the morning, coming home at two o'clock in the morning, the appetite isn't there for that anymore. So we're just doing maybe two or three weddings. Still love it. We get the, the band back together. And um and we you know we decide what we're going to do, who we're going to cater for. This year I've taken on two. I've decided to focus my my energy on and chips. And then we're also going to cater for the lovely um Blackwater Valley Opera Festival in Lismore Castle, which I've done since it's kind of from since its conception there. I think it's maybe 10, 15 years ago. And and I've become very involved in the West Water Festival of Food, which is my first year as being director, and I absolutely loved it. It was like a duck to water, you know. So and I Actually, if you guys are coming to Ireland, we'd love you to come to our festival next year, and I'll be in touch with you about that. But it's just amazing. So I'm using my skills in different ways. So again, I'm kind of evolving.
3: That's great. Well,
4: you sound that sounded easy.
3: delicious. <laughs> also, I have to say, like yeah. uh, describing the that meal, they're in. They're really in for a treat. So. <laughs>
4: Yeah, but even the way I'm thinking about it, you know, the brown bread I'm using the black Black Rock Stout brown bread. It's a stout that's made locally. Make, so I mix that with treacle and use Flavin's um, oatmeal and it's and some Howard's um, the West Cork um, flour brand. And then today I went in. I have big huge baskets, and I'm going to fill those with oranges and lemons and put. Um, big sheets of glass on top and have the brown bread and smoked salmon on those underneath you've got the lemons and then I'm going to kind of intertwine wild garlic and things in there the flowers and just again so it's kind of three-dimensional so you've got this lovely smoked salmon from Ballycotton served on bread that's made from our local ingredients here and then underneath you see you know the you see the lemons which aren't locally grown in Ireland but Someday there will be, um, with lots of herbs and things from the garden or from the fields around here. So it's kind of three dimensional, you know?
1: I think that we're getting close to the end of the interview, but you know, one thing that we like to ask some of our guests on the show is whether there's someone else in Ireland in the food space that you think is doing something really exceptional, or if you've been to a restaurant recently that blew your mind, or if you might want to um, uplift any other Irish artisans or producers.
4: Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of people doing, I mean, I, I could talk to you all day about this, like in Dungarten alone, we have the iconic tannery restaurant, um, Paul Flynn actually is launching a new book soon called Butter Boy. And, um, Paul's food is incredible. And again, you know, it's, it's very seasonal. It's always changing. Um, my favorite kind of restaurant outside Dungarvan at the moment is the beach house in Tremor. Paul Hogan and his wife, Jamoke, are cooking the most and serving the most incredibly simple, beautiful, locally sourced food. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, really, it's just such a treat. It's different every time. You know, there's like asparagus. what's um, I had the last day, I had some lovely John Dory pan fried, a deep fried John Dory with gorgeous chips and um, a wild garlic mayonnaise. And their food is just divine. And for dessert, then they have lovely things like rhubarb tart. And But for me, it's a fabulous place to go because I leave Dungarvan I drive down the Copper Coast by Boatstrand, by Annstown, along the cliffs, arrive in Tremor. Tremor is an amazing coastal town. You have Seagull Bakery there. You have Meze, um, Devere and Nicola Meze who make the most gorgeous um, the Middle Eastern food. And then in Dungarvan, we have a bakery called Dune Bakery. Again, fabulous food. Um, And & Co. in the Square in Dungarvan has just opened a fab new artisan food shop with a lovely little coffee shop. We have Garnamara, then um, a, a new vegetable grower, Cummer Mountain Lamb, Cummer Mountain Farm, who grow lots, of, have their own fabulous chickens. I mean, the chicken is just amazing. We have lots of people who are doing and growing. I mean, we can eat really well here without going outside the county. Uh, you can eat sustainably and eat all year round. Mike McGraw Butcher in Lismore, one of the oldest family butchers in Ireland. Their abattoir and slaughterhouse is just behind the shop. It's actually where my grandmother came from. So I'm especially fond of that. But it's all going on here. Eunice, thank you so
3: much for speaking to us today. This is a really wonderful conversation. It was so great to hear about everything you're working on. And we look forward to visiting and tasting everything in person. Thank, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks.
1: Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.
3: Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com.
1: We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyedgreenheritageradionetwork.org.